Welcome to the 256th of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology, and I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today's episode is a discussion of COVID-19 in the Cancer Alley region of Southern Louisiana with Wesley James and Kimberly Terrell. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID calls live every weekday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time on YouTube. Today is a special episode starting at 6.30 Eastern Time. And you can just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID Calls. Please do help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. As I start today's episode, I'd like to read part of a news item that recently appeared on the DSmog blog. This was published February 25th, 2021. The headline is, From Pollution to the Pandemic, Racial Equity Eludes Louisiana's Cancer Alley Community. This was written by Julie Dermansky. And I'll also put up a link to this article. I'm not going to read it in full. It's a long piece, and it has really tremendous and moving photographs that go along with it by Julie Dermansky. And I hope you'll check it out on the Desmog blog, the Desmog blog. I'll put that link up in Twitter after today's COVID calls episode. From Pollution to the Pandemic, Racial Equity Eludes Louisiana's Cancer Alley Community. Mary Hampton, President of the Concerned Citizens of St. John the Baptist Parish, a community group in Louisiana fighting for clean air, opted to do everything in her power to avoid getting the coronavirus after Robert Taylor, the group's founder, was hospitalized with COVID-19 earlier this year. So she got vaccinated as soon as she could. Either the vaccine is going to make me sick, Hampton reasoned, or the virus is going to kill me. Like many African-Americans, Hampton's hesitation around vaccination stems from hearing about the way black men were left to suffer during the Tuskegee syphilis study, an experiment between 1932 and 1972, which withheld life-saving treatment, and from her own lifetime of experiences with unequal health care access. She told Julie Demansky, who wrote this piece, that she and her family often had to wait hours to see a doctor for medical care while white people would go right in. Hampton and Taylor live less than a mile from the Dinka Performance Elastomere Chemical Factory in Louisiana's St. John the Baptist Parish. This community lies in the middle of Cancer Alley, an 80-mile stretch along the Mississippi River between New Orleans and Baton Rouge that is lined with more than 100 refineries and petrochemical plants. Their fence-lined community had been exposed to harmful air pollution for 46 years before DuPont sold this petrochemical factory, which produces synthetic rubber to Denka on November 1st, 2015. Then in late 2016, Taylor started the Citizens Group when the small majority black community learned that for decades, this factory had been exposing them to many toxic chemicals, including chloroprene, which the Environmental Protection Agency found is a likely human carcinogen. According to the EPA's National Air Toxic Assessment, published in 2015, which evaluates air contaminants and estimates health risks, residents near Dinka's plant were determined to have the highest lifetime risk of cancer from air pollution in the country, nearly 50 times the national average. In mid-March of last year, as the pandemic spread in the United States, Louisiana was identified as a hotspot for the virus with the steepest curve of COVID-19 infections in the country. At an April 5, 2020 press conference, Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards identified the African-American community in St. John the Baptist Parish as having an alarming death rate. A few days later, the governor announced the new Louisiana COVID-19 Health Equity Task Force created to look at how health inequities are affecting communities most impacted by the coronavirus. Almost a year later, Hampton told the reporter, Julie Domansky, that she doesn't find anything equitable about how her community has been treated during the pandemic. The Concerned Citizens Group believes that equity for their community 
should start with the government making the Dinka plant cut its emissions to meet the maximum level of chloroprene deemed safe by the EPA for humans to inhale over a lifetime. The Concerned Citizens Group isn't satisfied with Dinka's emission reductions, which were cut by as much as 85% after the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality and the EPA ordered Dinka to do so. Emissions, however, are still consistently above the EPA's recommended level, and the group wants the government to do more. If the state is serious about creating health equity, Hampton thinks her community should have received access to the vaccines for COVID-19 first, given their compromised immune systems and chronic exposure to harmful air pollution. But that isn't happening, Hampton explained. I was able to get a vaccine since I'm over 80 years old, but I couldn't get them for my children who are all in their 50s and they need them too. That was the first part of a remarkable article called From Pollution to the Pandemic, Racial Equity Eludes Louisiana's Cancer Alley Community by Julie Dermansky on the DSmog blog, and you can check the rest of the article out there. Okay, I'd like to turn to my discussion today. Let me introduce my guests to you. Wesley James currently serves as Associate Professor of Sociology and Executive Director of the Center for Community Research and Evaluation at the University of Memphis. He received his PhD from Mississippi State University in 2009. Wesley James's primary research interests are medical sociology, demography, and rural health. He's been involved in several externally supported research projects exploring a variety of health-related issues. Currently, his research agenda is focused in three areas, U.S. mortality disparities across time and place, social determinants of health and mortality in rural America, and evaluating health and educational interventions in the Mississippi River Delta. Dr. James has published in American Journal of Public Health, Social Science and Medicine Population Health, Demographic Research, Population Research and Policy Review, and the Journal of Rural Health, among other venues. Kimberly Terrell earned a PhD in conservation biology, field biology focused on protecting nature from the University of New Orleans in 2011 and dual bachelor's degrees in biology and political science from Tulane University in 2005. Dr. Terrell's graduate research was conducted at the Smithsonian Conservation Biology Institute and focused on endangered cat species. Throughout her experience as a scientist, Dr. Terrell has always felt strongly connected to the culture and environment of the Gulf Coast. Inspired by this connection, she joined the Environmental Law Clinic in 2018 as the Director of Community Outreach. And with her knowledge of environmental issues and experience working with diverse communities, she helps concerned citizens engage in environmental decision-making and access the legal resources of the Environmental Law Clinic. She considers herself a native of the Mississippi River Basin, having lived most of her life in New Orleans, Chicago, and Memphis. Kim Terrell and Wesley James, thank you so much for joining me on COVID Calls today. Scott, thank you so much for having us. Thank you, Scott. And Wesley, it's good to meet you. Kim, you and I were talking just before. You were part of an earlier discussion we had on COVID Calls in the summertime. And um, I've had multiple conversations with experts about what's been going on there in Cancer Alley. It's good to see you again. Thanks for coming back. Good to see you as well, Scott. So I'd like to start the way I usually do, just to find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is, is looking like there, and maybe what the vaccination situation is looking like there, too. Wesley, can I start with you? Yeah, sure. So I'm calling from uh, Memphis, Tennessee. And uh, the situation here is that uh, finally our city is uh, getting a better hold on the vaccination process. Uh, we struggled earlier uh, once the <clears throat> once the um, vaccines, the first two vaccines were widely available, our city struggled a little bit, but we've been doing better now, and people are getting vaccinated much faster. Kimberly, let me bring you in. Same question. Yeah, so I'm I'm based in New Orleans. I'm actually up in Memphis this week, ironically. Um, but I'll speak on behalf of New Orleans. I have to say I'm impressed with how our city is doing in terms of vaccination. Um, I got my first dose a couple weeks ago, and it was a well-oiled machine. It was efficient. It was, um, you know, I, I can't imagine it going more smoothly. 
Um, and I've been really encouraged to see how accessible the vaccines are, at least in New Orleans. Um, it, it seems like anybody who wants one at least has an appointment at this point. Is that a sort of a mass vaccination situation that's going on there in New Orleans, Kim? Yeah. So so I got my vaccine at the convention center, which if you've ever been to the New Orleans Convention Center, it goes on and on and on. It's you know many city blocks. Um, and so it was, you know, it it really uh, was really efficient. And I know several people who have been able to get vaccines through leftover doses. Right. So they've called up Walmart or their local pharmacy and gotten on a list um, and been able to, you know, quickly go in at the end of the day and get vaccinated with what otherwise would have been thrown away. Hmm. Well, thank you both for those reports from uh, where you are in Memphis and also the situation in, in New Orleans. I have to say that, um, you know, it's a, it's a real honor to speak to you both together. I mean, your work through this time has been just really important. Uh, there's been so much reporting that has tried to make sense of what's going on in cancerality. And I find that a lot of it is, re- is relying on the work that you've, that you've been doing. So I want to go into some detail um, about your findings, uh, the connection between racial disparity and preexisting health issues and air quality there in, in cancerality, cancer alley, and how that all relates to the pandemic. Before I do that, I'd like to get just a little bit of background about how you come to these issues. And Wesley, I'm gonna start with, with you on this. Now the term environmental justice is one that, it was even used in, in the campaigns this year. It's, it's not as far out of a term um, as people might've used to think that it was to bring those two concepts of environmentalism and justice together. I think it's pretty widely in circulation now, but I think it is worth pausing at the start here and sort of finding out how you come to that topic, what drew you into this research, what environmental justice means to you? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Thank you. So environmental justice has been a part of sociology for as long as I've been in sociology and uh, going back to the 1990s and uh, certainly much even before that, I would say that sociologists were probably um, among the first um, scholars and activists uh, out there who took a particular interest in this uh, particular subject matter. And so all three of my degrees are in sociology. So I was exposed to environmental justice and environmental racism issues from the time I was an undergraduate student. And I've always found it very interesting, just enlightened me to issues that I was not very familiar with earlier in my life as a young person. And so reading about those things were fascinating. And then as I learned more to, um, you know, have an understanding that not only, you know, is there unequal exposure to toxins and to factories and petrochemical companies and so on and so forth by where people live, but that there's also undeniable um, undeniable uh, patterns in terms of who these people are. And so my interest in that just grew deeper. And then as a demographer, these population issues are very, very interesting to me. And so when we find that particular subgroups of Americans are exposed to some things more than others are. I just find that fascinating, you know, when we learn that these things are not equally distributed around the country and that the the burden of these things are not even remotely equally distributed. I find that fascinating. And so, you know, as a sociologist, this is a big part of the things that we read about and teach our students about. And so I was fortunate to be a part of that and just have continued to be interested in that as I've gotten deeper into my career. And then, um, when I met uh, Kim, it was it allowed me to kind of take my interest to another level and um, be involved in the research that she's doing in in South Louisiana. And I've just really enjoyed uh, this whole thing. I think it's meaningful work. So your area of your sort of geographical area of specialization wasn't initially in um, Louisiana. Is that right? That's correct. Uh, my research focus is is much more heavily based in Mississippi than in Louisiana. Uh, so many of my roots are there. Uh, my alma mater, Mississippi State. Uh, when I worked there, I had so much experience uh, working 
on um, issues within the state. And even now that I live in Memphis, which is just right outside of Mississippi, uh, a lot of my research continues um, to be Mississippi-based. The research organization that that I direct, uh, most of the work that we do is Mississippi Delta-based. And so I'm, I've, I'm, I have more experience and more familiarity with issues in Mississippi, but the issues in Louisiana are also somewhat familiar too. And, and, you know, issues between the two states are not exactly terribly different from one another either. And so it was pretty easy for me to transition into this project with Kim and work, uh, you know, and, and try to provide some, you know, some input into the issues in Southeast Louisiana as well. Kim, let me bring you in on this kind of the same question just to get, um, I guess I've asked for a bit of an origin story about environmental justice for you. How do you come into these these topics? Yeah, so I came in through kind of the environmental side. My background is in wildlife research, um, and I spent the first decade of my career trying to get people to care about my work and trying to do work that mattered. And I, I quickly realized, you know, when there's tons of people competing to do the, the same work, you know, and, and study exotic wildlife, it's hard to feel like you as an individual researcher are having an impact. Um, and so then through a series of kind of unexpected uh, sort of semi-personal professional events, I ended up back in New Orleans and I applied for this job at the Environmental Law Clinic thinking, you know, I have some background in environmental science, you know, maybe there'll be some overlap. And I quickly learned that you know, the, the foundation of a lot of these issues comes down to information and facts. And a lot of times it's technical information and the, the deck is stacked against communities because they don't have technical expertise oftentimes the, the way that industrial companies do. And so it's a not a very level playing field. And I, you know, I've only been at the, the law clinic less than three years, and it feels like I've done more work than I have, you know, in the previous decade of my career and work that seems to, to really matter. Um, and so how I got into the COVID analysis specifically is that the Concerned Citizens of St. John, the group that you talked about at the beginning of this episode, reached out to me because at the time in April 2020, their parish had the highest death rate of COVID in the United States. And a study had just come out uh, from Francesca Dominici's lab at Harvard School of Public Health, you know, and that was the first kind of big landmark study linking COVID-19 with pollution. So the concerned citizens of St. John the Baptist wanted to know, well, hey, we've been living with pollution for decades. What does this mean to us? Um, so that's kind of in a nutshell how I got uh, you know, from from the Smithsonian to the podcast today. Thank you for that. And, and um, I, I wonder about the law clinic, just maybe say just a little bit more about that, because it's, a, it's an interesting innovation. Tulane is not the only university to have such a, uh, an intervention, you know, a place where uh, what's going on in the university gets, finds a place of practice and service to the community. But it seems like the law clinic you're part of is very much in these environmental justice issues as opposed to other kinds of um, carceral or other kinds of issues that other law clinics might be involved in. Was that always the point of the Tulane in, um, you know, Environmental Law Clinic to take on these kinds of issues from the beginning? I'd say the, the point was always to give people a voice in environmental decision making. And we don't have our own agenda. You know, we're not focused on pollution or climate change. We're focused on the issues that people bring to us. And being based in New Orleans, most of those issues are related to industrial pollution um, in some form or another. And so, you know, the, the environmental law clinic, I think when most people hear clinic, they think of a medical, you know, facility. Um, but in the legal sense, you know, a clinic is where 
uh, students provide free uh, represent free legal representation to people who couldn't otherwise afford it. Um, and so, you know, it, it really literally in a literal sense, you're leveraging, you know, white privilege to help uh, advance environmental justice. And, you know, it, it's been really inspiring to me to, to kind of see it all in action and to feel like, you know, these these institutions that have benefited from, you know, power and privilege are starting to kind of think outside their bubble and think about how they can, you know, leverage that power to, to create a more just society. So let's bring this into the context of COVID and, you know, going back to March of 2020, a time in which most Americans, if they could, were sheltering in place. Um, you know, people were worried about what was going to happen at the grocery store, what was going to happen with their kids' school. Um, but pretty, pretty soon, we began to see that the infection rates um, weren't random. They tracked along some areas that you probably could have predicted, that others, I think, had predicted because of previous pandemics. Um, that inequality was starting to pop up in the data and pre-existing comorbidities were popping up in the, in the data. It was maybe a little hard for that story to be told early on because people were really just trying to make sense of what it made, uh, what sense it made for them and their own families. That's a, just a little bit of a background, but the, uh, the PM 2.5 problem started to appear uh, Kimberly, you mentioned this early Harvard study that talked about it. You both had an, a co-authored early report, um, which has a good title too, Air Pollution in COVID-19, a Double Whammy for African-American and Impoverished Communities in Cancer Alley. So let me take you back to that paper, talk a little bit about the collaboration, the questions you were trying to face. And I guess we should start for anybody who's not familiar with it, what is PM 2.5 to start? Let's start with that and talk about the work. Wesley, let me ask you this first and then Kim will bring you in. Uh, yeah, so um, PM 2.5, this is much more of Ken's wheelhouse than mine, but this is a particulate, uh, particulate matter um, measurement. Kim, would you like to chime in and explain a little bit more about that? Yeah, so the 2.5 means that it's 2.5 microns in diameter or smaller. Um, so it's, it's super small, right? A micron is one thousandth of a millimeter, and a millimeter is each of those teeny, teeny, tiny lines you see on a metric ruler. Um, and, and so why size matters in that context is, is that the smaller the particle, the deeper it can penetrate into your lungs um, and even into your bloodstreams and your, your bloodstream and your tissues. And so, you know, larger particles, you know, we might inhale them, but they don't get deep down into our tissues. Um, and so those particles can cause direct damage, but they can also be a delivery system for other toxic air pollutants. So, um, you know, toxic air pollutants that might not otherwise find their way into your lung tissue can essentially hit, hitch a ride on the particulate matter um, to, to enter the body. And particulate matter comes from any, um, that, that small size particulate matter comes from any combustion source. Right. So so wildfires, uh, sugarcane burning, industrial processes, vehicle exhaust. Um, there are a lot of different sources out there. So with that as a as a background and as a known problem before COVID-19, um, now the pandemic starts to unfold in the in the spring of, of 2020. Um, talk to us about the kinds of of. Um, things you were seeing there, how you began to imagine the ways you would study this problem. Kim, stay with you on this, and then Wesley, I'll bring you in. Yeah, so one challenge in Louisiana is that we don't have comprehensive air monitoring. We have major gaps in air quality information. Um, and in particular, in Cancer Alley, we have huge stretches uh, where there's you know very little air monitoring, um, very little particulate matter monitoring. But with, with particulate matter, or PM, one advantage is that you can use satellite data. 
So that's that's the data that was used in that Harvard study. And we used the same data set in our study to try to understand, you know, how how these burdens uh, or whether these burdens, you know, are equally distributed within our state. Um, so we weren't, you know, we weren't trying to prove cause and effect because the Harvard study, you know, already did a great job of addressing that on a nationwide scale. And there's no reason to think that people in Louisiana are somehow, you know, immune to the negative effects of pollution um, that, that are documented throughout the country. So specifically what we were looking at was, you know, the, the distribution um, of the, the burden of pollution relative to, to race and income and other factors. Um, and that gets at the heart of the type of the work that Wes mm -hmm. does, um, you know, focused on, on social disparities. Wes, can I bring you in on that too? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things that Kim and I had talked about when we were in the process of doing this research was that we knew um, based on all the material that we were reading and the news reports out there and all the information that we knew at the time about COVID-19 and how it spreads and who is susceptible. And you got to keep in mind at this point in time that there were far more questions than answers and we didn't know nearly as much you know, nine months ago is what we know right now. But we heard a lot of talk about, okay, who do the experts believe is susceptible? And we heard a lot about, you know, people who are, uh, you know, of advanced age, people with pre-existing conditions. And then even at that time, it was people who live in um, highly dense areas. So the virus had been through some larger cities in the United States, but had not crept into rural America yet, or even really into moderately sized cities yet either. Well, so we knew these things, obviously anybody who was following COVID knew that too. But with the discussions that she and I had had and the work that uh, we had done in Cancer Alley, we were talking and just thought, you know what? Uh, one of the pre-existing conditions that nobody talks about, and perhaps it should be considered a pre-existing condition, is exposure is exposure to pollution, um, exposure to environmental toxins, and that was never a part of the national conversation. I mean, quite frankly, I'm not sure it's really even a part of the national conversation now. Um, but I think that's one of the unique contributions. Uh, of the work that we've done so far and of that particular study, um, particularly considering that, you know, this is a, a, a respiratory disease and the people who are living in places like Cancer Alley are, uh, you know, are far more exposed to uh, toxins than other people in Louisiana, even other people in their own parishes, quite frankly. Um, and so, you know, we were really interested in the fact that uh, you know, the, the disproportionate burden of COVID-19 in all likelihood is going to hit this group of people. And in particular, they already were at risk because of other socioeconomic disadvantages and things that we already knew about, not only with COVID, but with other health conditions too. And so, you know, it really was kind of this double whammy there. I want to come back to the, the paper, and this is the earlier version of the paper. Um, you published also in environmental justice in, in September. And we'll talk about maybe things that you learned over the, over the summer. But I just want to read one line from this. It's really an important context here. Um, emissions data reveal that industrial sources have become a greater fraction of Louisiana's PM 2.5, you write, since 1990, as contributions from vehicles have declined by 75%, while industrial PM 2.5 emissions have remained about the same overall. But the data also shows that PM 2.5 emissions are on the rise in Louisiana with a 33% increase between 2014 and 2017, which is concurrent with an ongoing wave of industrial expansion. I think that context, Kim, is really important because, you know, air quality, we, we often it's reported as a sort of a national issue. You know, EPA is doing its job. And so air quality in the United States um, is this or is that. Uh, or we might have sort of state level data, maybe. Um, but you've gone in and talked a lot more specifically about what this means, even in different parts of Louisiana, right? 
Yeah. So, so one challenge is that, you know, pollution has, pollution patterns have changed over time. And if you're, you know, if, if you're looking to try to make the argument that things have gotten better, you know, you can pick your starting point as the mid nineties and focus on, you know, the massive reduction in pollution that really occurred nationwide, you know, in the early 2000s, um, largely as a result of, of better vehicle standards, right? So that 75% decline in Louisiana in, in vehicle emissions. Um, but the problem, there's two problems. One is that, you know, there hasn't been enough attention on the, the last several years and the recent trends and where we're going. And in Louisiana, we're backsliding. You know, yes, we made improvements on air quality. We're losing those improvements in terms of PM 2.5 pollution. The other thing that we don't talk about enough is the toxicity of pollution, right? So, so not every pound of pollution is created equal, right? You can have pollution from, you know, a construction site, and that's going to be really different than pollution from that Denka plant that you talked about at the beginning of this episode, you know, that emits uh, a toxin called chloroprene. That's a very potent uh, cancer causing substance. So, you know, whenever I hear kind of statistics about pollution declining, you know, I ask two questions. Well, one, you know, what's the pattern of toxicity uh, for pollution and, and two, well, you know, what's the recent trend, right? Are we, are we losing ground? Are we maintaining those improvements? Um, because in Louisiana, you know, the, the situation is that uh, certain communities have always been overburdened with pollution, and that disparity is getting worse, not better. Uh, just to understand, and Wesley, let me bring you in on this, this question, how we understand the sort of pre-existing state of health in any given place in the United States. You know, the comorbidities or disease burden of a particular community, these are terms we've heard used a lot. And it seemed that, you know, the COVID infection rates as they um, were showing up in the United States, different pockets of the United States, that was a way to envision what were already pre-existing really heavy burdens of disease in certain communities. But how do you actually get down into the specifics of that? What are some of the units of measure? How do you get that kind of data so that you can say things with some certainty, as you've said um, in these articles that you've written? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So uh, most of the work that I do is um, kind of at the place level rather than at the individual level. And so the places that I study and have data for are typically counties. Sometimes we look at uh, sub-county units like tracks, which um, kind of indicate neighborhoods or sections of counties. But the easiest data to get um, at a sub-state level is county level data. And so some of the things that I've done uh, over the last several years are to take, uh, well, for instance, in, in some of the environmental justice work that I've done, we were able to uh, capture data of, of environmental toxins at the county level. And then we just basically overlay that with socioeconomic data, demographic data, um, census data. And then we can very easily identify hot spots. And so if you can just measure, here's where the emissions are happening, uh, uh, over whatever geographic boundaries they may be, tracks or counties. And then we can just simply say, all right, who lives there? And we often map these things and visualize them and then it can be really eye-popping. And that's what we found that people are very interested in that kind of thing. So, um, you know, maps of uh, Cancer Alley, for instance, we can just show here's heavy, heavy, heavy levels of emission. So we sort of indicate this as people who would be at risk for cancer causing illnesses and, and, and various other things as well. And um, shade those certain neighborhoods a certain color to indicate who lives there. And then boom, it's like, wow, that that is quite the disparity right there. Um, so 
Um, emissions being in, you know, poorer neighborhoods. If you visualize this data, it's it's so obvious. I mean, like I, I mentioned before, I use the word undeniable. It's just simply undeniable that, you know, who is disproportionately affected by these things. So that's the type of data that I typically use. And it's just really cool to be able to, you know, um, put one layer of data on top of another and often visualize this data. And then the uh, the outcomes are, uh, are, are very obvious at that point. So, Kim, this is a, a kind of a simple question, but I think it has a complicated answer. When you see these patterns reflecting that um, this pollution is dropping on African-American communities, um, why? why? How do we explain that pattern? Because it's not something new. Those people didn't just move there yesterday. There's a historical grounding to this that seems to be pretty important to understanding what we're looking at here. Yeah. So with the communities that we work with at the clinic, um, in, in every case I can think of, the community was there first and the industrial plant moved in second. Mm. Um, so, you know, I've heard it described before that the, the plants go in the path of least resistance, right? And so, you know, they go in places where people don't have the resources to fight them, where people, you know, are working multiple jobs. They, you know, they're not plugged into their state department of environmental quality. They don't know how to sign up for public notices of, of permits. And, and importantly, they don't have local and state political representatives working on their behalf, on, the, on behalf of their health. Um, so, you know, it's, it's an issue that we've seen again and again, and in St. James Parish, which is just west of St. John the Baptist, the parish that you talked about at the beginning of this episode, in St. James, the, the parish council actually developed a land use plan that took the African-American district of the parish, which is District 5 uh, and District 4, and zoned uh, or, or considered large or I should say, classified uh, large sections of those districts as residential slash future industrial. And if that, you know, if that characterization doesn't tell you, you know, what what the problem is, um, I, you know, I think that's just about the clearest illustration you can have. the The whole point of land use planning is to keep people away from you know, harmful or disruptive uh, development. And so to, you know, to, to take a residential area and say, yeah, this is going to be industrial, um, you know, goes against every, every foundational, you know, purpose of, of land use planning. But just to stay with that for a second, that, that zoning, the devil is really in the details here, residential, future, industrial, so that means you're seeing a pattern that these companies are moving in with the intention that the people who live there now are going to move out, that they're, they're going to make it impossible for them to stay. I mean, I know none of us are privy to the long-term real estate plans of any given petrochemical company, but that's a really striking sort of vision of a future in which these communities are not meant to stay there. Yeah, and and I think the, the part of it that's most disturbing to me is that, that that planning is by the local parish government. It's it's not the industry did not create that plan. That plan was created by, you know, the parish level representatives mm. whose job it is to, you know, protect the interests of their constituents. Um so, you know, it's it's something we've seen kind of repeatedly you know, not necessarily in the, in the form of a land use plan, but, you know, a lot of the communities that we work with, you know, have similar stories of, of these plants coming in to the African-American parts of, of the parish. Um, and there's a really excellent documentary called Mossville, When Great Trees Fall, that talks about how a, a community Mossville in southwest Louisiana, which is kind of like the... <laughs> It's more industrialized than Cancer Alley, but it never gets talked about. Um, and, and that community was literally, you know, most of it was paved over uh, by a single expansion um, of a particular plant. 
Wesley, what is the demographic data? Sorry, go ahead, Wesley. Come in on that, and then I want to ask you another question. Yeah, uh, no, I just wanted to add that uh, I, I think you brought up a great point, um, and you had mentioned that you know perhaps the intent is for the people who live there not to live there long term, but what could you know potentially be just as bad, and, and and maybe in many people's eyes even worse, is that some of these people may not be able to leave, and um, so we'll see declining home value. So even if people wanted to leave and sell their house, um, well, that, that could be a really difficult endeavor. And, um, and so what you may see is just sort of this concentration of people with very few resources and, and any resources and any other, you know, um, positive amenities in that community may be able to leave, but that doesn't mean that every individual or every family will be able to leave. And so you see just even this greater concentration of poverty and of a lack of resources, which can include a lot of things, a lack of food. It could become a food desert. So no healthy food around. Um, maybe even public transportation doesn't go there. So it could be hard to get to work or keep a job. Housing values decline. Um, you know, the the quality of schools can you know, potentially decline as well. And these become less attractive places to live. And so it's really important, even though some people may leave, others kind of get trapped there. And and it just becomes this really negative cycle. I um, just want to stay with that for a second, because there's something that um, was surprising to me when I found this played out in Philadelphia. There's an old refinery, very old, going back into the 19th century. It's been a, a petrochemical uh, refining center um, one time or another in the Point Breeze neighborhood in Philadelphia, the Snowco refinery. And one of the things that's often been talked about when people raised alarm, and they said, we don't want that here. Of course, the supporters of it will say, well, this is a job creator. This is a wealth creator. Um, and so why would you shut down? Why would you say that this is a problem? This is really creating, we'll deal with the environmental problems, yes, but we have to focus on the economic issue at the core of it, and one thing we saw in Philadelphia is that the jobs that are being created are not in the Point Breeze neighborhood. In fact, a lot of people who work in that plant live in New Jersey. They live far away. Um, so the the uh, benefit of those jobs not even accruing to the state of Pennsylvania, they're going somewhere else. I've seen a similar pattern play out in Port Arthur, Texas, where I've um, had the opportunity to talk to John Beard, who's an environmental justice activist there. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of work there. But it's not that wealth is not flowing into the communities that are on the fence line. And Wesley, just following up, because I think it's connected to what you were just saying, how should we understand um, wealth as another layer of data that we have to take into account when we think about you know, disease and exposure to toxins in these places? Yeah, Scott, that's also um, a, a great point. And so you know, we don't typically find that the people who, you know, the executives and whatever other positions, you know, that are being hired at these places are not sitting in their backyard staring at smokestacks. And um, and so, you know, that's that's typically a misleading comment, um, you know, that, that you had not your comment, but the, the kind of the spirit of your comment is absolutely true, but is often kind of used to, you know, mislead people. Um, and not and not exactly be full disclosure on telling the whole story. And there's actually a connection to data here, too, with the last question that you had asked me. You know, one of the things that Kim and I and I'm sure many others out there would really like to be able to measure is data at a finer geographic level. And so we can really parse out the health differences between people who live incredibly close to these places versus people who may live in the same county or the same parish, but a little bit further away, maybe on the periphery of those counties or X number of miles away from these facilities. And if we're able to do that, we can answer some really important unanswered questions right now about disparity and geographic location, which would have a lot to do with, you know, the, the residential patterns and the wealth of people who may get jobs at these places versus people who may or may not work there, but live near there too. And that's a really important distinction to make, but sometimes it's very hard to measure. 
That is really interesting. It ties back, um, Kim, to something you said earlier about a sort of lack of air quality measuring um, that goes on in like St. John the Baptist Parish. Uh, it's not, I mean, to talk about it even at the parish level is complicated as we've just seen because there are competing economic interests there. And from what you were saying earlier, um, we don't have a lot of good data about air quality in different parts of, uh, of a region as big as a parish. Say a little bit more to us about that, that issue because it, it sounds to me what we're describing is that even within what some people might think is relatively small piece of land, you have a lot of economic diversity, racial diversity, and exposure diversity, even in that space. Yeah, and I'm, I'm actually going to go off camera because you were breaking up a little bit, and I want to make sure everybody can hear me. Um, but definitely, when we talk about parish-level health measures, it's really difficult because if you drive through any of these Cancer Alley parishes, there are parts of the parish that you would never suspect you know, that area is called Cancer Alley. There are parts of, of the parish that look, you know, quaint and rural and serene. And, and there are parts of the same parish that look like an industrial apocalypse. And so, you know, we really don't have enough data on individual communities. And, and some of the work, first of all, very little research has been done on Cancer Alley. I mean, it's, a lot of people in New Orleans know Wes because he, you know, he authored one of like the two or three objective papers on Cancer Alley in the last decade. Um, and it, you know, he, his work represents like 30% of the research uh, that, that's been done. Um, other studies have been done. And in particular, I'm thinking about, you know, a, a study that LSU was Louisiana State University researchers were involved in that came out maybe in uh, 2010 or 2012. And the, the issue with that study is, you know, they looked at lung cancer cases and they said, OK, well, of lung cancer cases in Louisiana, how many of these folks live near a petrochemical plant? And are you more likely to live, you know, are people living near petrochemical plants more likely to have lung cancer. Well, the problem is when they corrected for smoking, you know, the, the effect, you know, they, they did see that people living near uh, plants were more likely to have lung cancer, but then they corrected for smoking. And the problem is that when you remove smokers from your, from your lung cancer data set, you're left with a much smaller number of cases because most people in Louisiana don't live next to a petrochemical plant. It's much more common to smoke cigarettes in Louisiana than it is to live next to a plant. And, and that's the whole nature of what we're talking about, right? These plants are not evenly distributed. They're concentrated in black communities. Um, and so the number of people, you know, who are, are living next to these plants, you know, they represent a relatively small proportion of the total population, but they are vulnerable communities that keep getting inundated with more and more industrial development. So I really try to get people to focus on cancer risk and, and, and pollution-related health risk, because that is one area where we have excellent data from the Environmental Protection Agency. And so that, that was the kind of data that we used, you know, in addition to that particulate matter satellite data, we looked at the, in our paper, at EPA estimates of pollution-related health risk for the respiratory system and the immune system specifically. Um, and, at, you know, at the end of the day, we shouldn't need to connect this to, to death and disease, right? It should be enough to say black and brown and poor communities in Louisiana and elsewhere are disproportionately burdened with pollution-related health risks. Just a reminder, you're listening to COVID calls and we're talking about the 
pandemic in the context of air pollution in Cancer Alley in Louisiana with Kim Terrell and Wesley James. They published an article in September of 2020 in the journal Environmental Justice titled Racial Disparities in Air Pollution Burden and COVID-19 Deaths in Louisiana, USA in the Context of Long-Term Changes in Fine Particulate Pollution. So staying with this issue that you started to write about in the spring through the summer and then into the fall, and I just want to follow up on that. Did you see any any changes um, in the data over the summer in terms of infection rates? Um, you know, what was changing as the pandemic um, itself was changing? And I, I want to ask that. I want to sort of have a second question connected with that, which is my memory is that EPA relaxed some of its standards in the pandemic as well. There was some sort of emergency suspension of certain air quality standards. I don't know if that's a suspension of the standard or a suspension of measurement. Maybe you can clarify that a little bit. But I've seen some reporting that indicated that the air quality might have even gotten, ironically and terribly worse for people who live in these areas during this time. Um, I don't know, Kim or Wes, if either of you can address some of those concerns. Yeah, so so the... Early on in the pandemic, EPA relaxed um, reporting requirements uh, for for industrial plants, and you know, in addition to reporting, also you know that includes monitoring, right? So so monitoring air and, and water pollution and reporting that, um, and you know, the idea was that if, if that work can't be done sort of in a COVID safe way you know, need to give plants some flexibility. Um, and, and in theory, that makes sense. But in Louisiana, the, the problem is that we often see, uh, you know, situations abused and taken advantage of to the detriment of the community. Um, and I think if, you know, if we had confidence that our state was working to protect the health of citizens, um, you know, maybe people wouldn't have been quite so concerned about EPA, you know, relaxing those requirements. Um, and, and that was like a temporary, uh, temporary relaxation. Um, but, but ultimately, you know, we, we really don't know how uh, COVID has affected air quality in Cancer Alley because we don't have enough air monitors. Um, we know in, you know, in, in some communities, uh, for example, some environmental justice communities that are adjacent to airports, I'm thinking of, you know, the community around JFK in New York, uh, that community actually saw an improvement in air quality from a reduction in um, airplane traffic. Um, but in Louisiana and Cancer Alley, you know, our industrial plants continued to operate um, throughout the pandemic. And what we saw was, you know, this claim that they were creating, you know, essential products. Um, but the challenge is that, you know, we don't have any objective data for, for the, the products that they create or the economic benefits that they create. You know, we hear numbers of, you know, oh, a thousand jobs for this plant, an average salary of 85,000. But, you know, it, it's, everything has to be taken at face value because we, you know, we never see sort of the underlying objective data in the same way that we see, you know, the pollution data. As you're describing it, I'm thinking then that the, that burden of proof then so often falls back on individuals who have to somehow demonstrate that their health problems, which may be chronic, um, are also exacerbated um, by the pollution, and then also further exacerbated by COVID, which itself has its own sort of inequalities in, in how it unfolded and the failure of the federal government to report and the various other things that are connected with that. So it's it's sort of assault on assault on assault here, but the, the onus of action seems to fall back on the sick and on the community, which is distressing. Yeah, I wish my internet was working better so you could see me nodding emphatically. <laughs> We can imagine just, it. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is one thing that that really uh, I find disturbing about the situation in Louisiana is that the lack of evidence, the lack of research is weaponized against the community. And, and a lack of research is taken to mean that there's evidence that there's no problem. 
And that's just not the case. You know, the, the reason that people think there's no problem is, is nobody has bothered to look. Um, and the, the few objective studies that have looked at pollution disparity in Louisiana, you know, Wes's, uh, I think, 2012 study is one of them. Our recent study is one of them. Um, it, like Wes said, it's undeniable. It's, it's crystal clear that where you have higher proportions of African-Americans, you have drastically higher uh, pollution. Wes, let me give you a, a chance to, to speak to that. And then I want to also ask you how these kinds of studies do get taken up among local community members and environmental justice communities. How do they build on the data that you're showing, the studies that you're making? How can they build on that to try to make a healthy environment for themselves? Yeah. <clears throat> well, so... Well, there's a couple of points really that I wanted to mention. Um, a couple of minutes ago, you uh, had had made a mention, Scott, of how the pandemic maybe has changed, you know, throughout since it's been a year now, and the Cancer Alley perishes. But there was one really important thing that your comment made me think of, and. Back when uh, St. John was, let's see, one of the highest rates of COVID of COVID mortality uh, in the U.S., I believe is what Kim had cited. That was, you know, not only interesting just for that fact itself, but that was also before COVID had started to creep into rural America as well. Now, St. John is not too awfully far from an urban area of New Orleans, but um but, but it's still largely considered a, a rural area. And so the fact that it happened there faster than it happened anywhere else in rural America is pretty noteworthy in my opinion. And, um, and so I, I wanted to make mention of that. And then to the other point, you know, one of the important things that we as social scientists just want people to understand is that this is not an exception to the norm. This really is the norm when it comes to um, you know, environmental issues and race and demographics that, you know, we know this is not a one-off case because we see this happen not only in Cancer Alley, but in cities and in states all across the country. And it's not just right now. It's happened, you know, there are documented cases for decades upon decades upon decades. And we just think that, you know, one of the most important things we can do as social scientists is just try to get people to understand that this is important because it is a pattern. And since it's a pattern and since it's unevenly distributed and, and people without means are typically the ones facing the greatest burdens, that it really is our duty to not only educate people about this, but to get more people concerned about it so then something can be done about it. And you know that's a long process that's been undertaken for a long time, but we don't need to stop. You know, this process of educating and getting more people to care about these issues is just absolutely critical. Scott, you're muted. Thank you for that, that catch. I appreciate that. Um, you know, in this kind of a, of a setting, um, Wes, I'm thinking also I had the opportunity last year to meet Wilma Subra, who's a well-known um, figure uh, in, in Louisiana and nationally um, as a person who really sort of provides scientific um, intervention to assist local communities with their claims. Um, you know, because what, what you've both been describing here is a really um, disturbing pattern where in the absence of data or the absence of studies, um, powerful interests can say, see, there's nothing really to see here, or there would be research. I mean, you're in that space, um, Kim and Wes, and your work is in that is in that space. How do local environmental justice activists work with your studies? I mean, because ultimately they're the ones that are there breathing it, living it, getting sick. Can you tell us a little bit about how they take a study or the studies like you've done in the middle of this pandemic and and turn it around, use it to their advantage. So, okay, I'll chime in on this one because th this has been 
um, I guess I would say a really surprising and unique experience for me. Um, my original publication on Cancer Alley was, I believe, in 2012. So it's, it's been a, a number of years now. And my co-authors and I at the University of Memphis, we published the study. We were happy about it, and we thought we had really interesting findings. But, I mean, honestly, like many publications that professors get, you know, maybe you don't really hear much else from it. And um, a few years went by, and then suddenly a handful of people from uh, New Orleans start reaching out to me and saying, hey, would you like to come down here and talk about your study? And, um, you know, we have an interested audience. We have an audience of, of grassroots individuals who are, you know, really care passionately about this topic. And we'd like to talk with you. We'd like to hear, you know, kind of your own interpretation of your work. And so I don't even know exactly, you know, how that happened, but probably four or five years after the initial publication of that study, then people started to reach out to me. And well, I'm assuming it probably happened because as Kim said, there just weren't very many uh, peer reviewed studies done in Cancer Alley. And so I guess I just kind of had the good fortune of having one of the few. And so that's, you know, allowed me to have these opportunities to come and talk to, you know, activist groups and, you know, grassroots organizers and so forth. And then even really the most, um, you know, the most rewarding one was I actually was able to go to St. John and, and speak to a chapel or speak in a chapel to a group of local residents, um, you know, who, who had organized. And it was really rewarding to get to meet them and see the people who live this life every day. Um, but, you know, I must have just been picked up by some people who really cared and and they wanted to use any information they could possibly get to help to make their case that, you know, hey, this is happening in our community. Something needs to be done about it. Somebody needs to listen to us. And so from my personal experience, that's how my work kind of got into those circles. But it's been great. I've been really, you know, just really happy and fortunate that I've been able to, to do that and play a small role. I had the opportunity. Go ahead, Kim. If I can quickly add, I'm sorry, I have a lot of background. But the other way that it really matters is in permitting decisions. So anytime any of these big plants, you know, wants to build, they need a permit, you know, almost always from the state government, often also permits from the federal or local government. And in Louisiana, our State Department of Environmental Quality has said there is no disproportionate impact. There is no pollution disparity. And, you know, having an academic paper that you can point to that's objective and peer reviewed can be a really powerful advocacy tool um, in, in, you know, that uh, permitting process. We're almost up on time on, on this discussion with Kim Terrell and Wesley James on COVID calls today. Um, just a final question, and uh, Kim, I'll ask you first, and then uh, Wesley, turn it to you as we wrap up. Um, what should we be looking for uh, next? I mean, this pandemic is a disaster that plays out in multiple different acts. And of course, people are being vaccinated now. And one hopes that that brings their risk down. Um, but of course, the underlying risks of, of you know, poor air quality on health are still going to be there in Cancer Alley. And the pandemic will be unevenly distributed, of course, as we go on. There will be flare-ups. Fourth wave is underway in certain parts of the United States. I don't know how that's impacting Louisiana. So I guess um, the question to you is, how will you stay, continue to be engaged in drawing out these connections? What's the next stage of the research for you, Kim? Yeah, so right now I'm looking at um, kind of continuing along the line of, you know, relating health to pollution. Um, and I kind of don't want to give too many details because I'm, I'm working on an analysis. Wes, I'll tell you about it at some point. Um, but, you know, working towards kind of another analysis that could be similarly um, a powerful advocacy tool. Um, and, and just to end on a positive note, I, I will say that I have been so impressed by Cancer Alley communities 
how seriously they're taking the pandemic and how careful they're being with respect to COVID. You know, a lot of these groups have spent, for example, Rise St. James um, and Concerned Citizens of St. John the Baptist Parish, they have giveaways where they give away masks and they give away hand sanitizer and they encourage their fellow community members, you know, to mask up and be safe and socially distance. And, you know, to me, that solidarity is is something that no one can take away from them. And and I'm, I'm you know, so encouraged to see that. Um, and I hope that that saves lives. I appreciate that note and pointing out that solidarity and that and that action. These are not communities that are passively sitting by and letting this happen. They're taking their own action and they are pretty organized. Um, Wes, what are you looking for in terms of research going forward from here? Ideally, the next step would be just to continue to collect as much data as we have and then hopefully be able to get data at, at finer levels of geography. And it's, it's easier said than done, but I, I think it could be possible. And that would help us answer the next step of really important questions. And um, so, you know, ideally that's what would happen. And, um, and hopefully it will. Just want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls and you can catch COVID calls every weekday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Program note, I am starting to move more uh, Korea and East Asia-based episodes into the COVID calls lineup, and that will happen this week. The next COVID calls you can catch will be at 5.30 p.m. Korea time on Friday. And of course, if you can't catch that call live, you can always catch them later on Periscope or YouTube or uh, on podcasts, wherever you get podcasts. And my discussion on Friday will be with professors Jaewon Yoon and Yongsub Choi. We'll be talking about face masks uh, and the use of face masks and PPE in East Asia and the pandemic, but also the deep, rich historical background of that usage. So please do join me Friday, 5.30 p.m. Korea time for that. And I want to thank my guests, uh, Wesley James and Kim Terrell, for their time today and also just for patiently explaining how they're doing this work, how they're imagining this work and the social impact of this work. It's just been really fundamental in this time. Thank you for it. And uh, thanks for making time for this conversation. Thank you, Scott. Thank you so much, Scott. Thanks, everybody. Stay healthy. And we will see you on Friday on COVID Calls.